Well, good morning, good morning. It's so great to see all of you. Uh, isn't this fantastic, all of this? This is wonderful. What, a, what? Yes, please, please. This, this morning's sermon is going to be on prayer. Let me, let me just say at the outset, please, please, let me just echo what Doug said. Please pray for us this week that this would be uh, an opportunity and a means that God would use uh, to reach the hearts of, of children and that he'd be pleased to save them. So please pray for our time this week. Um, we'd be grateful for that. Well, my name is Stuart McRae. I have the joy of serving on staff here as one of the pastors. Um, and if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, we're going to pick up where we left off last week. If you grabbed one of the blue or red Bibles at the sides, that blue is 987, the red is 1,256. If you don't have a Bible and you picked up one of those, please take that Bible with us. That's, that's our gift to you. <clears throat> so 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, starting in verse 11. Please follow along with me as I, as I read our passage this morning. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So last Sunday, we looked at the first 10 verses in chapter 3, where the main point was the heart of a disciple maker is, is centered on the faith of those whom they are discipling. And at the end of that passage, we saw Paul's prayer for these Thessalonians in verses 9 and 10. In verse 10, Paul wrote, we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. This morning, we're going to look more at Paul's prayer in verses 11 through 13. This prayer being a conclusion of last Sunday's passage can be seen as a prayer of a disciple maker. A disciple maker, I said this last week, a disciple maker is a spirit-empowered disciple of Jesus who enters into intentional relationships with people to help them trust and obey Jesus. And what we're going to learn in this passage is that as that disciple makers, part of the help that a disciple maker gives to those whom they are discipling is praying for them. Remember, if, if you're a disciple of Jesus, then you have been commissioned by Jesus and equipped with the Holy Spirit to be a disciple maker. You could be discipling a neighbor, a coworker, a friend a roommate, a, a classmate. You could be discipling your spouse or your, church, or your children. You could, be, you could be discipling somebody in the church. But no matter who, as a disciple maker, we should pray for those whom we're discipling, asking God to finish the work of salvation that he has started in them. That's really the main point of this passage. A disciple maker should pray for those whom they're discipling, asking God to finish the work of salvation that he started in them. Now there's three, three things of prayer, there's three prayer points 
uh, that Paul uh, brings to our attention in this passage. There's one in each verse. So verse 11 is a growing faith. Verse 12 is an overflowing love. And verse 13 is a, is a prayer for purified hearts. And in this prayer, Paul is going to show us that, that a disciple maker should pray for those whom they're discipling, asking God to finish the work of salvation that he started. Well, let's, let's get into it. The, the first prayer point that Paul asked God to do in the lives of the Thessalonians is for God to produce a growing faith. In other words, a disciple maker should pray for those whom they are discipling, asking God to grow their faith. We see this in verse 11. Follow on with me as I reread. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. I mean, on the surface of this first prayer, it seems that Paul is only asking God to open a door for him to return to the Thessalonians. As you'll recall, Paul has been eagerly desiring and trying to make his way back to Thessalonica, but has somehow been hindered by Satan and unable to return. So Paul prays. Paul asks the one who is greater than Satan. Paul asks the one who is stronger than Satan. Paul asks God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ to direct our way to you. The ESV's use of direct is a, is a fine translation, but I, I think it gives the, the, uh, the idea that Paul is merely praying for God to direct his way when the, the Greek is clear. Paul is asking God to clear all hindrances in his way so that he can return. Satan has been hindering him. And Paul is asking God to remove Satan and to remove all obstacles in his way and make his, his path straight so that he can return to the Thessalonians. The reality is Paul's praying to God because the Lord alone, the Lord alone can break satanic blockades. So Paul asked God to open a door for him to return to the Thessalonians, but, but why? Well, it's, it's not because Paul is wanting to go on a vacation to Thessalonica. The, the reason Paul asked God to clear a path for him is seen in verse 10, what we read last Sunday, to supply what is lacking in their faith. You, you see, his prayer in verse 11 is assuming his prayer in verse 10. Paul wants to return to Thessalonica. He wants to see them face to face to supply what they are lacking in their faith. This word supply means something more like complete. So Paul is saying, God, please, please clear all obstacles in our way so that we may return to Thessalonica, see the Thessalonians face to face because we want to fill the gaps in their faith. Now, let's make this clear. The, the, gaps, the gaps in their faith weren't in their saving faith. That, that faith that, that God granted to them when they first started trusting in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins. There, there's no deficiencies in saving faith. There's no, there's no gaps there. That's not what Paul is praying to be able to fill the gaps in. There's no sufficiency, no deficiencies in saving faith. The gaps that Paul is referring to are in their theological knowledge and, and mainly in the application of their faith. I think we can infer that what Paul brings up in the final two chapters in this letter is, is the gaps that he's thinking about. So those would be things like in sexual purity, work ethic, interpersonal relationships, the Lord's return, spiritual leadership, and spiritual disciplines. 
You see, in this, this first prayer, Paul asked God to open a door for him to return to the Thessalonians so that he can be used by God to grow their faith. This is really praying, this is really a prayer that Paul is asking God to open the doors for discipleship. And as disciple makers, we should pray for those whom we're discipling, asking God to grow their faith. We should, we should pray and ask God to help them understand the truth and then to be able to apply their faith to every aspect of life. We, we must ask God to do what only he can do and to finish what he started and, and grow their faith. And we want to be like Paul, too, and ask God to allow us to be a part of that great work, to use us to help them grow their faith. Ultimately, only God can cause such efforts to be effective. And so we must ask him to do it. We, we also want to ask God to, to help us to be in the, in the trenches with those whom we're discipling. If we find that the doors of discipleship are closed, we need to ask God to burst them wide open. So in, in other words, if you find that you continue to have uh, scheduling conflicts, if you have even one scheduling conflict and it's, it's seemingly impossible to get together with the person whom you are trying to disciple, pray. Or, or maybe you're trying to make inroads with somebody uh, for initial discipleship. You're trying to build a relationship for discipleship and there seems to be roadblocks at every turn. Pray. Ask God to open wide the doors so that you can be used by him to help those whom you're discipling grow in their faith. I mean, listen, we, we, we should plan and we should pre uh, prepare. We should be intentional in our, in our planning and our preparing for discipleship opportunities. But, but ultimately, ultimately we, we are dependent upon God to open the doors. And the question is, is, are we asking God to grow the faith of those whom we're discipling? Are we asking God to open doors for discipleship? Are we depending on God to do these things? As disciple makers, we must pray for those whom we're discipling, asking God to grow their faith. The second prayer that Paul asked God to do in the lives of the Thessalonians is for God to cause them to have an overflowing love. In other words, a disciple maker should pray for those whom they're discipling, asking God to cause them to have an overflowing love for others. This is in verse 12. Follow along with me. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. Back in chapter one, Paul gives thanks to God for their work of faith and labor in love. And now Paul asks the Lord Jesus Christ to increase, to make their love increase and abound or to overflow. The type of love that Paul is asking God to cause to, to increase and overflow is agape love. Got a definition up here. We're going to work through it. I'm going to read the first sentence, a pause, uh, talk a little bit, and then we'll, then we'll finish the definition. So we're not going to read it all uh, right now. Follow along, first sentence. Agape love is an expression of the essential nature of God 
and the perfect characterization of the relationship between God and humans. You see, this is the type of love that John spoke about in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 10, where he says, Beloved, let us agape one another, for agape is from God. And whoever agapes has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not agape does not know God, because God is agape. In this, the agape of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is agape. Not that we have agaped God, but that he agaped us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That might have been a little odd, but I'm hoping that stuck out to you that way. Agape love is the kind of love that only originates from God for mankind. It's an, it's an otherworldly love. It's the, the self-giving, self-sacrificing love that we see in Jesus on the cross as he died for our sins. Maybe one of the closest points of relation that, that we can get is the, the love between a parent and their, their child, where the love and sacrifice, where they love and sacrifice with little expectation of return. And yet, even that to include all human love is flawed by some degree of sin and self-seeking. It's agape love that Paul calls the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5.22. It's not a fruit of you or me. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And if those whom we're discipling are to bear this fruit, this agape love, then we must ask God to do it because this love only comes from God. Furthermore, Agape describes the supernatural character of God reflected in the Christian community as shaped by the indwelling Holy Spirit. You see, this is why God, uh, Paul asked God to cause the Thessalonians' love to increase and overflow for one another. That is, the community of believers and for all people. Jesus said to his disciples, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. One of the distinguishing marks of a disciple of Jesus is their genuine, Christ-like, selfless love for others. Now, part of what Paul is doing by, by praying for God to increase and overflow their love for others is to lay the ground for what he wants to encourage them in starting in chapter four. In chapter four, Paul encourages the Thessalonians to abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, and then he says, love one another more and more. 
there's a, there's a connection, and it's actually this, a discontinuity between love for others and sexual immorality or sexual lust. And this is one of the, the gaps that the Thessalonians have in their faith. And, and it's why Paul is praying that God would cause their love to increase and overflow for others. Listen to this insightful quote from John MacArthur as he connects the dots between Paul's prayer here and what he's going to encourage them in starting in chapter four. He says, selfless love is the opposite of selfish lust. Humble love, and there is no other kind, is the opposite of pride. That's the whole issue. If you're loving the way God loves, then you're unselfish and humble. If you're unselfish and humble, you will not fall to the sins of pride and you will not fall to the sins of lust, which simply gratify your own flesh. So, and he concludes, Paul is simply saying, the heart that loves God fully and loves others completely will not be driven by the lust of the flesh because that would be selfish. A heart in which love dominates is selfless. Paul desires for these disciples to selflessly love others, which is the very opposite of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality at its core is a self-centered, selfish love. You see, Paul wants them to be an example of Christ's love within the community of believers, but but he also wants them to be a witness of Christ's love to those outside the Christian community. And that will be seen only and mainly and mostly in how they love one another with an overflowing, selfless, agape love. This agape love is the kind of love that only comes from God. And that's why in the second prayer, Paul asks God to cause them to have an overflowing love for one another and for all people. And as disciple makers, we too should pray for those whom we're discipling, asking God to cause them to have an overflowing love for others. You see, listen, if those whom we're discipling are gonna stand out in a culture that tells us to look out for number one, it will be by displaying the love of God in Christ Jesus. The selfless, serving, humble love of Christ Jesus towards others. And the only way that they will display that kind of agape love is if God gifts it to them. We, we must pray. We must, we must be dependent and earnestly pray upon God to do what only God can do and to gift them his love and do it in an overflowing way. Now, what does this love look like? It's the kind of humble love that enables one to lay down their own interests for the interest of others. The kind of love that we're asking God to produce in those whom we're discipling is the one that's slow to anger and quick to listen. It's the kind of love that's willing to do the hard thing and, and go talk to someone and not about someone. It's the kind of love that is quick to admit wrongs and quick to forgive when wronged. 
as disciple makers, we, we must pray for those whom we're discipling, asking God to cause them to have an overflowing love for others. The third and final prayer that Paul asked God to do in the lives of the Thessalonians is for God to establish their hearts blameless in holiness. In other words, a, a disciple maker should pray for those whom they're discipling, asking God to purify their hearts. Follow along with I, me as I reread verse 13. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. So that the beginning of this verse lets us know that, that the prayer here is a result of the previous prayer in verse 12. That's what so that is saying. So in other words, Paul is asking God that as a result of him causing the Thessalonians' love to increase and overflow for others, that God would then purify their hearts, or as our text says, establish their hearts blameless in holiness. The, the Bible speaks of our hearts not, not as an as an organ, but, but as the core of our being, of, of who we really actually are. In other words, the, the Bible says the heart is our, our causal core. It's the center of our, of our intellect and reasoning. It's the center of our emotions and will. The Bible says the, the heart is the reason why you do what you do, say what you say, Think what you think, love what you love, hate what you hate. That, that is what God is after. That is what God is trying to change is our hearts. And, and that's why Paul asked God to make the core of their beings, their hearts, blameless in holiness. Paul is asking God to do what only God can do, and that's to conform their hearts to his very character. You see, Paul is asking God to purify their hearts, from, from any sin, from any leftover enduring sin that may remain. The sin that causes them to have self-love versus the selfless love of God for others. But what we're talking about here is, is sanctification. This is that, that long, steady process over the life of a disciple of Jesus where they transform more and more into the image of Jesus. This is why in chapter four, Paul says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, or, or literally holiness. This is the will of God, your holiness. God ultimately wants the hearts and lives of his people purified from any sin that remains. I mean, as an aside, you, you know what God's will is for your life? I mean, isn't that a question that we often have? It's your holiness. It's that your hearts and lives would be purified from any sin that remains. That's God's will for your life. He wants you to be more like Jesus. So, how does God gifting the Thessalonians his selfless love for others result in him making their hearts pure, right? I mean, that, that's the question. That was the, the big question for me, at least, looking at this text, is, is, how, is how is it that what God gives the Thessalonians his selfless love for others result in him making their hearts pure? 
Well, there's one other thing that we need to know about love before we can answer that question. In Romans, uh, Paul's letter uh, to the believers in Rome, in Romans chapter 13, Paul tells the believers in Rome that all the ethical commands can be summed up in this one command, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he concludes, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. You see, for God to cause the Thessalonians' love to increase and overflow for others results in God making their hearts blameless and pure because in loving others with a Christ-like selfless love, they are fulfilling the law, the ultimate ethical standard by which Christians are to be judged. And in ultimately fulfilling the law, they will stand blameless. Now don't forget, God is the one who's causing this love to overflow. And God is the one who is purifying hearts. There, there's, there's no room for boasting here. God is doing this work. And, and then before what standard are they found blameless? Before our God and Father. You see, the, the standard of moral conformity is, is not to the culture that is around them, but it is before God. One commentator well says, the Thessalonians were faced with constant pressure to conform to the culture around them. However, Christians must view their world in a different way. The culture says if you want to get along, then you must go along. But God has a different perspective. Paul is, Paul is praying that, that, that God would conform their hearts in holiness before him, the standard of purity and holiness. And Paul says the timing of this moral conformity would be at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ <clears throat> with all his saints. Paul understands that the Thessalonians are gonna struggle with sin for the rest of their lives. And so too, for all of those, us who have been saved by God, we're gonna continue to wrestle with leftover indwelling sin. But his prayer is that God would ultimately finish what he started in their hearts so that on that day, that, that day when disciples either go home to be with the Lord or when the Lord returns, that on that day, it would be evident that they had been set apart as holy and had lived for Christ. You see, in this third prayer, Paul asked that God, Paul asked God to ultimately purify their hearts before him and at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we too should pray for those whom we're discipling, asking God to purify their hearts. In Hebrews 12, 14, we read, strive, strive for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Our moral, our moral conformity into the image of Christ is a, is a big deal. This is the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. But let's be clear, we can't do this without God's help. We can't do this on our own, and the folks whom we're discipling can't do this on our own. None of us can change our own hearts. That's why as disciple makers, we must pray for those whom we're discipling, asking God to purify their hearts.
as we consider these verses on prayer, what we've learned is that as disciple makers, we should ask God to grow the faith, overflow the love, and purify the hearts of those whom we're discipling. We're asking God to do this because he's the only one who can. God is the one who is sovereign over these things. Where else can we turn? Who else is gonna open the closed doors of discipleship? Only God can do that. Who else is gonna grow faith? Only God can do that. Who else is going to overflow love? Only God can do that. Who else is gonna purify hearts? Only God can do that. At a high level, what we're theologically learning from Paul is that those whom we're discipling, all of us, can't make one step forward in our journey of becoming more like Christ without his help. We need God. We must pray and ask God to do these things. God is sovereign over these things. God is sovereign over all things. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases, Psalm 115.3. God works all things according to the counsel of his will, Ephesians 1.11. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4.35. And then in Isaiah 46.9 and 10, God says, remember the things of old, the former things of old, For I am God, and there is no other. I am God. There is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things are not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. I think the natural question that comes up for us when when we think about this is that if if God is sovereign over all things, if he works all things according to the counsel of his will, if he has already determined the ends before the beginnings, why why pray? What what does prayer do? And I I ask this question because I want to answer this question. And I I want to do it so we can can have our, 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 our understanding of prayer bolstered so that we would be encouraged to want to pray more. So listen, God not only ordains the ends of things, God also ordains the means to those ends. In other words, God not only determines the destination, but he also determines every spot along the journey to get there. Consider Christ's death. When God determined that Christ would die on the cross, he also determined the means by which he was killed the means by which he was delivered to the authorities and the means by which he was betrayed. In Acts 4, 27 through 28, we we read this. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod, Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles, and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God governs all events in his universe, to include the the big ones and all the small ones leading up to the big ones. And so it is with prayer. Prayer is one of those ordained means that God sovereignly uses to bring about the ends that he has ordained to come to pass. 
Listen to how Paul teaches us this in Philemon, where he wrote in verse 22, at the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. The word here translated given means to graciously grant a favor and combined with the fact that this word given is in what the Greek calls the the passive voice, meaning Paul is not gonna be the one who's actively doing this. God is doing it. Paul is an active, a passive participant. Paul is saying to us that he understands that his eventual whereabouts are ultimately in the hands of God. But this is important. Paul hoped that God had sovereignly determined to act in response to the prayers of his people. So think about it like this. In Philippians 1, 6, Paul writes this to the church in Philippi. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will complete it at the day of Jesus Christ. Paul knows for sure that that God started the work of salvation in the Philippian believers, and he is positive that God will complete that work. And this is the same Paul who, on our passage, prays, prays that God would finish the work that he's already promised to finish. Paul knows that God not only ordains the ends of things, but also the means to those Ends. And Paul understands that prayer is one of those means that God has ordained to use to bring about his desired ends. And so he prays, he, he participates actively, hoping, hopefully. He has great hope in his participation. Let, let's say this again. Let's say it like this. God has promised to finish what he started in salvation. And one of the means that God has ordained to do that is through the prayers of fellow disciples. So Paul prays. Paul prays. <laughs> and then check this out. This is 2 Thessalonians. This is down the road from 1 Thessalonians. Check this out. 2 Thessalonians 1.3, we read this from Paul. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, these, these same brothers, as it is right because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. God answered these prayers because it's the means by which he was accomplishing the work in the Thessalonians' life. God not only ordains the end of things, but he also ordains the means to those ends. And prayer is one of those means that God has ordained to use to bring about his desired ends. This is why we pray. This is why we know that prayer is effective because God uses prayer. So let me end by encouraging us. As disciple makers, we should pray for those whom we're discipling, asking God to finish what he started in the work of salvation. We should pray earnestly, We should pray with great hope and anticipation that God will act. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for this passage about prayer. Thank you for including this passage so that we could understand that you are calling us as disciple makers to pray for those whom we are discipling. 
pray in dependence on you, knowing that you, you are the only one who can do these things. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you give us great hope? Would you give us great confidence? Would you give us conviction to pray? To pray, thank you, Jesus, that through your blood we have access to God through prayer. What a sweet gift that was purchased at the cross, and I pray that we would be encouraged to, to, to actively walk in our prayer lives and pray. Give us help, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.